0: Welcome to Terminal Talk, a podcast about mainframes and mainframe related topics. We're here on I don't even know the episode number anymore, but we're on this roll. Yeah,
1: i will have to do math at some point and figure out what number it is.
0: <laughs> yeah, we've we've had a couple
1: of really good episodes lately. We've been getting some great feedback from people, really enjoying uh, especially
0: the last two. Those two were awesome. I can't believe we got those guests.
1: It was it was really you know, sometimes it's the the planets align and you just get those guests and they, they open up like that. Um we we should eventually think about making those episodes available to the the general public
0: well but you know the top tier people who've spent so much extra money as supporters
1: right the the top tier terminal talk supporters who um you know they throw in a couple extra bucks every week to uh to help out our whiskey and microphone fund that's so appreciated and uh they should really get first swing at it
0: that's the way i look at
1: it yeah so today we oh, have oh yeah we have somebody yeah, yeah who's this guy <laughs> <laughs> who how would you get in here <laughs>
0: Yeah, we have Andrew Sika, who is the uh, head honcho tech dude for container-based pricing. How's that? Is that a good intro? That that sounds pretty good. That'll work. <laughs> so, first of all, um, what is container-based pricing? Is this got something to do with Docker? Yeah, why are we <laughs>
2: charging for Docker? Isn't it free? Boy, I have to explain that every single time we get into this yeah, topic. Yeah, so you and, must be really good at yeah, it. yeah. <laughs> And, and of course, container pricing has nothing to do with Docker or extra virtualization or any of those sorts of things, right? It's really, um, a, a sort of a concept around providing simplified, flexible, and relevant pricing, right, to a specific solution on ZOS. So, no, no Docker in there or anything like that. Um, our customers' workloads run just like they always would have, um, uh, without any of that extra, uh, stuff in the way. Right.
0: <laughs> yeah. We had a couple of episodes ago. We had uh, Cheryl Watson uh, talk to us about uh, about a lot of this pricing stuff. And she really lined up for those of us that don't do it all the time, um, how the dark art of charging for capacity works. This is supposed to make that simpler it it is
2: and the way it does that is by basically providing a, a a level of let's say pricing isolation from traditional workloads that are based on the rolling 4 hour average so you know the rolling 4 hour average i guess i can get into that a little bit right mm-hmm. um you know it's it's this sub capacity concept that it falls under is something that came around i want to say 20 to 25 years ago and in that concept IBM products, whether they're MLC products, which are monthly license charge products, or one-time charge products, um, the cost of them in the MLC case, right, and in the IPLA case, the the amount of license capacity that are required is based on the rolling four-hour average of the LPARs on which they run. And so, you know, 20, 25 years ago when there was a lot of affinity between workloads, right, traditional workloads, and, and obviously there still is, um, that concept made a lot of sense. And like I said, it still makes a lot of sense to charge for software in that way uh, for those traditional workloads. Now, as we get customers looking at other products, right, using their ZOS data um, for things like analytics, right, this this concept of charging for software based on the size, right, or the peak consumption on the LPARs on which it runs, Mm -hmm. right, can make it a, a little bit more expensive because running something new um, on that LPAR, if it happens to run during a peak time, regardless as to what IBM products it's using, can really drive up the cost the cost of the entire software stack.
1: Yeah, that's just it's a concept that just doesn't exist outside of of mainframe. I don't think it's it's like yeah, I'm going I'm going to pay for what I'm using, whether it's in the middle of the day or not. And I mean, we used to do remember it used to be like a it's after seven o'clock or whatever. You can call my phone because I have free minutes. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, but this is—I think this is kind of important. Um, even if you're like, like, just a, a bits and bytes kind of guy or, or gal. Um, and you might be saying, "Well, you know, what do I care about pricing? I don't have to pay for anything; somebody else does." Because <laughs> uh, you know, you know, Frank, you and I have been involved in a lot of uh, customer proof of concepts where we try to build up some sort of project, some sort of idea. And even if you nail all the the technical aspects of it, it somebody still has to pay for it. It still comes down to dollars. And if there's this giant question mark over it, of could it be, you know, you know will it interfere with my four hour rolling average? Gee, I don't know. That's a that's, uh, one surefire way to get the thing killed.
0: Right. Just because I have something that works and works well doesn't mean it's not too expensive to run, right? And right. that's really what we're trying to avoid.
1: And it sounds like this will let us kind of partition something like that off or at least uh, draw a line around it um, to say that this, this is a separate workload uh, that it consumes things differently than you know the, the granddaddy, the crown jewels, <laughs> you know that where the four hour rolling average comes from.
2: Right, and and that's exactly what it's doing. I think the the biggest complaint that we typically hear from customers around pricing isn't necessarily that the platform and the software is more expensive, right? It's that it can be so difficult to understand what the cost of a new application or workload is going to be on the platform because, you know, is it, is it going to impact the peak, right? Does it require a new software license? Is it going to create a new peak, right? And it's that whole rolling four-hour average concept that makes it really difficult to understand. So what container pricing does, besides the, the pricing framework that's there and the, the different offerings, is it basically introduced a, a technical framework by which you you have this concept of a container which is basically just a you know a logical or, or virtual type of construct. And it's something that can scale from being co-located on an existing LPAR, right, through the use of some WLM technology called a tenant resource group um, all the way through to separate sets of LPARs. And, and with this, the customer gets to decide what what is the appropriate choice there. Right, we're not dictating it to them, which is something we used to do in the past for other approaches we've had. Right, things like Zenalk. You know, if if you wanted that special new application license charge pricing, right, um, it had to be on a separate LPAR, and that was just a requirement. Right, um, we just had no way of really measuring it within that pricing framework. This gives us the capability of measuring it without pushing a lot of
0: work on the customer on a month-to-month basis. So. I'm, I was going to wait a little while before getting getting into this, but you, you kind of brought it up, so I think it's important. As I, um, as I try to group stuff together, before it was the way to do this was I'll do it simply by uh, saying, well, this LPAR, that LPAR is eligible. And, and that follows kind of a traditional distributed model of, uh, for us, an LPAR, for them, maybe a machine. Um, We'll just fence it off that way. And and what you've done is much more granular. And and this is important because the mainframe's value is that I can do things at a much more granular level, right? So can you kind of talk a little bit about what's the technology behind building those those boundaries?
2: Sure. Um, One of the key things we've done here, and I'm going to backtrack a little bit from what you said, is that uh, we did look at enhancing the workload manager of ZOS, and that, that team has done a great job. Um, in the past, what we would have asked a customer to do, for example, for something like uh, ZCAP, ZSystems Co-Located Application Pricing, or or even earlier versions of mobile workload pricing was, we would have told them, on a monthly basis, it's up to you to manually track and aggregate data related to how much of your Transactions and how much CPU time they're consuming that qualify for this offering,
0: and that was all um,
2: honor based, right? It, it was honor based, right? It was it, you know, we we asked them to show us how they're doing that, but again, it's something that would have been very very difficult and would be very difficult for us to really in-detail track on a monthly basis, and more importantly, it introduced a lot of work for somebody at the customer site, right, right, on a monthly basis to pull this data together. And then they would have to submit it in a certain format to SCRT. Um, Now with this support that we've introduced in WLM, it builds on, and it's actually similar to the old WLM resource groups. These things are called tenant resource groups. And essentially, you classify address spaces that are part of your new workload, or whatever the solution happens to be, right? Part of it to one of these tenant resource groups. IBM gives you something called a solution ID. These solution IDs help us link the workload as it's running on your system to an offering you were granted. And then this this approach follows all the way through um, the reporting process. So It'll show up in the SMF data that you're already collecting for SCRT. It will show up in the SCRT report without manual intervention on a month-to-month basis, right? And and you'll also be able to see now for this container, whatever it happens to be running in there, how much resource it's consuming and what products it's using and all of the metrics that are relevant to that solution itself, right? So the price of that solution only is... Impacts the software that's running in it, basically.
0: So you use this term SCRT. Is it super capacity rating technique or? I like that. I think that. that I, I like that too. Uh, yeah, I let's that
2: racing team.
0: Oh, that's even better. Yeah.
2: So so SCRT is the sub capacity reporting tool. That's pretty cool too. I guess.
0: Okay. I like mine better. I already forgot. Oh, it <laughs> is
2: better too. <laughs> Um, SCRT is something their customers require to run on a monthly basis so it looks at a couple of different types of SMF data um, RMF data SMF 70s and SMF 89 types which basically show product specific data and it just it cross references those two record types and it, amongst other things right? it looks for the peak rolling four hour average of the products you're running um, it does things like implement mobile workload pricing and other IBM, uh, let's say, price offerings, including container pricing. Recently, a lot of the stuff we've done there is around not just supporting things like container pricing, but trying to provide a a little bit more transparency around the factors that are impacting, right, the rolling four-hour average for a customer, you know, primarily what LPARs, um, you know, are contributing to it, how... Certain types of capping are being applied, right? Things of that nature. So, um, but yeah, it is. It's a key part of our whole business process, right? On on the platform.
0: So, so SCRT is is it a tool that you run against uh, standing data? It's not something that's running in the background, monitoring our every use.
2: Nope they they customer runs it once a month and just gives us the SMF data for that month. Um, they can actually run it, you know, most of them run it on ZOS. Um, you know, there's other ways to run SCRT, though, including, you know, Windows and Linux if if they have a need to. Um, but it, it's basically a post-processor that produces this report that they have to submit to IBM.
0: And when, um, how do I know, uh, not that any of our clients would ever do this, but How do I know that the data hasn't been doctored?
2: So we do have some ways of looking at, I'll say, the SCRT report itself when it's been submitted, as well as um, trying to draw some insight from the SMF data, let's say, to um, try and ensure that the data hasn't been tampered with.
0: So they run this thing, it creates a file, and then they send it to you? They email it to you, or how does that work? So there's
2: a website that most of them, so the short answer is it depends, right? (laughs) Uh, There is a website called uh, LMS, right, which I think stands for License Management Support, that they would submit these reports to on a monthly basis for most of our customers. Now, there's always exceptions to that, right? But generally, that's the process. Before they do that, most a lot of our customers are reviewing that report in quite a bit of detail. Um, There's vendor products, right, that... Analyze the report. Um, you know this is how we determine what to bill them for. You know software such as their monthly license charge software. Uh, so they do pay a lot of attention to it, and it does tend to get a lot of scrutiny. And depending on the customer, right before they go ahead and actually submit it.
0: So I, I've let's pretend, and I know we're really stretching here. Let's pretend I've created this really cool program that runs on on uh, ZOS, and I I want to. Uh, to have it play in this in this scrt world is there a lot of work for me as a developer to, to be part of that new workload container
2: So let me rephrase the question to make sure I've got it okay <laughs> I, I think what you're asking is you know let's say you're, you're either an IBM product or maybe you're a vendor product right and you know you've come out with this new, New toy, right? this Widget, monitor, whatever it's it a happens very to cool be, thing. right? And you know, you want to make it more attractive to your customers, or you want to make it easier for your customers to run it and understand what it's going to cost them. Um, with container pricing, you know, assuming that IBM agrees that it's eligible and fits the qualifications, um, with container pricing, um, basically the client, right, is the one that's responsible for initiating the process, right? And perhaps they're working with the IBM sales team as even in the early stages of understanding how they can bring the workload to the platform and have it be competitive, right? So what, what they would do is work through that process um, with their sales team with a basic understanding again of roughly how much capacity they might need and what IBM products they might need with that information, they can get a, a quote and a price point that is going to be consistent month to month and isn't impacting right, the, the cost of unrelated software products. Right. So if you wanted to do that outside of the existence of container pricing, you know, the first thing you'd be looking at is, is, is this going to run during a peak hour? You might not know. Um, if it's not going to run during a peak hour, could it create a new peak hour? That answer could change month to month, quite frankly, right? So, it's, I mean, it's Frank's, one- Frank's app is going to be awesome.
1: So it's obviously <laughs> going to drive up all the resources,
0: <laughs> and it's going to be so inefficiently created right. <laughs> that it will drive up the peak. <laughs> wow. So, um, so as a programmer, do I have to write certain SMF records in order to be noticed by the SCRT tool? Or?
2: Nope. And that's one of the nice things about the container pricing approach versus um, some of the things we've tried in the past, where in, in this case, your program has to run in and it has to be something we can technically isolate, basically. It needs so an address it space. Needs an address space, right? Aside from that, there's really no other required implementation steps. Um, like I said before, Basically, IBM's got to agree with you that this is something that's eligible for a container solution, but then beyond that, as a, as a developer, there's nothing really special you have to do to instrument it.
1: So what would, what's like a good guideline for whether or not I should be looking at this for a workload? Like You talked about eligibility. What's
2: something that I know is this is definitely a go-to and this is a... Eh. Well, the most popular solution we have, right, in terms of interest has been the development and test solution. In one of your recent episodes, Cheryl Watson spoke about the development and test solution, and that's the one where we, we've seen the most interest. And the basic criteria is, the first part of it is, and the nice part, I think, is that first of all, it takes into account something you're already doing, your existing development and test workloads. And what it does is allows you to grow that pretty substantially, right? and there's a whole set of baselining that goes through along with this that we can get into whatever detail you guys want, <laughs> but um, it allows you to grow your development and test environment and basically gives you a mini, you could sort of think of it as a full capacity environment for development and test um, where you can, again, run the development and test workloads you've, you're, you're doing today, grow it up to three times its largest size at this point from a software licensing perspective, And not have to worry about what time of day your developers are on there, right? Um, Again, from a software licensing perspective, we all know there might be technical reasons why you do things and and why you have different priorities set up. This is supposed to remove the MLC cost impacts that might be driving, right, some of your behavior points. We talk to clients that, you know, during peak times are aggressively capping their development and test environment. Right. Right. Basically to keep their MLC costs down as production increases, development and test decreases. And you hear some horror stories about them sending development home at the peak times of day, right? Especially during an especially busy time. Those are the sort of behavior points that we really need to get in there and start changing because they're they're in our in my opinion, right, and I'm sure a lot of others, they're things that are damaging the platform and are keeping it from growing.
0: Yeah, of course the developers probably liked going home early one yeah. day. <laughs> Yeah, we can't work from uh, from 1 to 5 today.
2: Well, and these are the cases where okay, during a certain time <laughs> of day my compiles taking 45 minute minutes type of right. things, right? I mean, it's not it's it's not a good thing all around. Well,
0: and and um, you can imagine we have already heard a couple of people on on the podcast talk about the fact that people are not tuning for performance, they're tuning for cost. And and, and you're talking about taking away the need to do that, right? And I think that's really a key reason why you've been devoting, you know, so much of your life to this, to this activity, right?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I, that's one of the things that I've noticed since coming into SCRT, where I started in ZOS development. Um, working in system logger and then timer supervisor, right, some low-level areas of the operating system. And I had no idea how software pricing worked until we had somebody who were basically retired with no notice and <laughs> they needed somebody to step in. And, you know, one of the things that I've found since being in the area and talking with customers and sales teams and product teams is just how much the pricing model and right the, the way that it works with regards to the platform really... In, impacts one what's running on the platform but two how they talk about their own products right and and the amount of resource that our clients are actually again devoting to price engineering versus right let's say more constructive uses of time
0: well can, can we just kind of i know this is a bit of a tangent and we have to get back to 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 the, the whole scrt thing but you were a technical guy, primarily very very low level technical What was it like to make the transition to tie in so much of the business? How hard was that and 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 what what did it what has it done for you to you
2: <laughs> i mean it was difficult. I took on the role uh basically planning to spend a a year or so in the in scrt turn around you know the mission there and some of the problems there and you know uh, i know for myself and and i I know from talking with you guys that you're kind of the same way um as soon as I got into it and started feeling out the dynamics there and how critical an area it was, it, it was difficult to adjust and learn because we were basically rewriting this tool from scratch, right, uh, using some existing code that was around. But it was, a lot of it was being done from scratch with a set of folks involved. Um, you find that you, again, it was difficult, but you find you have to learn very quickly. It's high pressure. And all of those things are, are fun, Right. I mean, you want to be working on something that is critical to the company, and this is a space where, you know, you could see just from day one how critical it really was and how much we really did need an expert in this area. And with my role, you know, I know a lot about how the factors that affect cost on the platform now or in the past I had no idea, quite frankly. Uh, And that's how I really see the role is, you know, working with product teams, working with ZOS development to try and put the right infrastructure in place to support what the business is trying to do, but then also to explain that those concepts to, again, product teams, to ISVs, to even to clients, right? And so I think that's where it's, it's been a really interesting and exciting you know, transition for me.
0: Yeah, that's, I, I was really hoping that you would talk about that because... Uh, the purity of your techno has been, has been compromised, right? You're, you're, <laughs> you're still doing all that technical stuff, but there's this whole business side and, and it really kind of changed your whole perspective on, on how everything worked, right? Um, you're, you're still obviously still technical and deep technical, but, but having to kind of merge these two worlds is not straightforward.
2: No, it's not. And, and, that at times has been a struggle, right? <laughs> mm. <laughs> but I, I, I do think you, you can't jump into a space like SCRT and then container pricing and, and ignore the business factors. And I would say anybody from, who's technical and is getting to the point where they're starting to advance their career you you have to start to be cognizant of these of the fact of the way the business works right because it's going to affect how clients are adopting your product um, why your product's not being adopted these are just things that are at the very core of how our clients are making their decisions and you know again you can embed yourself in the technical aspects of you know Whether it's the new analytics tool, right, Um, a new technology, a new framework, whatever it happens to be, but unless you understand, right, how clients are using the platform and what's, what are the factors that might prevent them from bringing this thing onto the platform, right, and and having it disrupt their yearly budget, right, is one of those factors, right. So you have to really, you know, start to understand these things, and I, I think that's something that. We might neglect around here from time to time.
1: So, you, but that that combination of the technical side and now the, the business side, you're you're going to be one of those guys uh, responsible for kind of unwinding that knee jerk reaction of oh no 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 don't put don't put it on the machine. It's very busy and very important, and we need to be able to treat it like like people treat their their cloud platforms. Of uh, I'm I'm paying for it. I'm going to use it.
2: Exactly, <laughs> exactly. That's a that's a really good point. Um, we, that's one of the things we've heard from customers where it's. You know, again, how many customers have you guys spoken to that have a cloud-first strategy at this point? And to me, there's there's a part of that that says the technology maybe they think it's more attractive than ours is, and I I disagree with that, but whatever. Um, <laughs> and ninety-five percent is good enough for anybody, <laughs> <laughs> right? Um, but there's also a part of it where they want they like the pricing and the charging aspects of the way it works. And to me, it's that we can move and start to shift ourselves to being more in line with the goals of cloud pricing, right, in terms of being, you know, something that's transparent, simple to understand, right, all of those good concepts that, by the way, I don't really believe cloud is any of those things anyway, right, <laughs> having... But but look,
1: you can't see at home, I'm doing this grandiose <laughs> hand gesture while I say cloud. It's right, cloud. right, it's the cloud. <laughs> It'll solve all the problems. It'll
0: solve everything. Um, before we we're talking a little bit about I've created this new piece of code and everybody's going to want to use it and I want to be part of this um container-based pricing as the as the a vendor how do I find out how much my stuff has been consumed in this I heard that the kind of reports get loaded onto an IBM website with the super secret password and special handshake do I learn the special handshake and get my own super secret password, or how does that work?
2: What we've done now, and I think we did it back in around 2016, was we put a program in place by which a ISV can utilize subcap- the SCRT, right, the subcapacity reporting tool, for their own purposes. And th- the thought there really was, if we can open this up to the ecosystem and right, start to get ISVs more in line with, you know, we can't tell them how to price, obviously, but get them more in line with, um, the way we price on the platform or at least give them the capability to start to evaluate these things and then to evaluate things like container pricing, um, you know, we might get a little bit more affinity across the platform and start to get to a common approach. So they can use SCRT, right? It's, a, it's no charge. Um, they can download it. If there's a minimal amount of setup they basically give their customers a, a product file that has basically their list of products that they want reported on. And SCRT will work just the same way it does for IBM products. It will give them a report that shows just the ISV products in it and, and ZOS, right, and all of the rest of the data there. So we, we've spent a lot of time and a lot of effort. Right, Starting to at least enable the technology so that they can, as they start to evaluate these techniques and these models, they have an avenue to use a common tool set at the very least.
0: Okay, so pretend for a moment uh, that you have uh, all the money that you need. Um, Any dream you want um, in this space um, can be accomplished. Where would you want this whole pricing thing to go? That, that's a really
2: interesting question. And I, I, so I'm going to stay away from uh, trying to forecast from a pricing standpoint right. where, Smart where we might to go, want to go. Right.
0: Just, this is just what if it was up to you right. and you could do whatever you wanted, what, what would it look like? I'm not saying what would IBM do or anything, but just what, what would be a really cool future that you'd like to see?
2: I, I think the really key piece of this is starting to build out. The infrastructure and, and, and we've talked about SMF data and RMF data and all these things. Starting to build out the infrastructure and the tools and monitors around it so that we can just continue to increase transparency. So I'd like to get to a point where customers in real time without having to buy any additional vendor tooling, for example, right? Could understand at any point of time where they stand during the month. Um, you know, have more clarity about what workloads are contributing to that. I think this is a direction we can start to go in now, um, but there's a there's a lot of work there, and that's where I see when we talk to customers about you know the problems they're facing. It's again understanding costs, right? They they all to me circle around transparency, clarity, and just simplifying things. So that's where I think we need to, from a technical standpoint, really continue to invest and build up that that ecosystem. So in, in
0: that picture, would SCRt be running all the time, or
2: yeah, it could be. It certainly could be. Um, as the, when we look at these vendor products that I mentioned, you know, one of the things is that they're all trying to replicate what SCRT is doing, right? Or at least give you a view that's similar and can help you understand what's going to happen on the end of the month when you run SCRT. So I think having that capability there of that same pricing tool that, you know, can help you understand what's going on in real time and, and how, again, the factors that are affecting your cost And then at the end of the month, just being able to simply press a button, not have to collect all the data at once because you've been doing it all along, right? There's a lot of value we can start to look at providing there.
0: Well, thanks. This has been awesome. Um, It's a part of the business that a lot of us techno weenies uh, generally have not thought about. And I think it's really good for them to start to see the connection between, um, gee, I'm running this stuff and it actually costs something. and and what we're trying to do to um, minimize the effect of that. Thanks. Well,
2: thanks. This has been a lot of
1: fun. Yeah, Thank you. Cool. Old man Charlie, run us out. You've been
0: listening to Terminal Talk with Frank and Jeff. For questions or comments, or if you have a topic you'd like to see covered on a future episode, direct all correspondence to contact at TerminalTalk.net. That's contact at TerminalTalk.net. Until the next time, I'm Charlie Lawrence signing off.